0: Um, Hi, everyone, and welcome to the unscientific method where we unpack the research and lives of the young scientists doing amazing things all around us. Um, And today we have a special episode, and it's a meet your host episode. So I'm your host, Beth. And I'm your host, Sarah. Um,
1: And today we're going to have a little interview of each other. Yeah, I'm really excited about this, actually. Beth and I, uh, yeah, I think you can see the excitement in our faces here. Yeah, (laughs) it's going to be awesome. Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so uh, my name is Sarah. I am a PhD student in my third year in bioinformatics at BC Cancer Agency under this um, very, very successful person named Dr. Stephen Jones. And... uh, yeah, it's been really good so far and I love it a lot. And this is actually my sixth year at UBC since I spent some time here doing my master's. Yeah.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I'll introduce myself really quickly and then we'll get into all this. Yeah. Um. So as you know, my name is Beth um, and I'm doing my PhD here at UBC as well. I'm in the School of Biomedical Engineering studying under Dr. Peter Zanstra and I'm in my third year as well. And I feel like I'm Right in the weeds of it all, you know? Oh, man, is it ever thick? (laughs) It's so thick in there. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) These moments of, like, clarity where you're like, what? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And I just want to say I'm really excited and proud that we're here because Beth and I are always just trying to squeeze this in in left, right, and center. So it is cool. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that we're making it happen. Yeah. Yeah,
0: This is really fun. Um, So just a bit of background. Uh, Sarah and I have known each other for many years at this point. Um, we both did our undergraduate degrees in the um, Department of Microbiology and Immunology out in Halifax mm-hmm. at Dalhousie University, um, and I want to start off with a question, Sarah. Do you miss
1: Halifax at all? I miss Halifax so much. I was saying the other day, I haven't met a single person that celebrates Alexander Keith's birthday.
0: Oh, it's true. Alexander Keith's birthday, actually. For, for reference <laughs> for our listeners, Alexander Keith <laughs> is a beer that we all drink on the East Coast, and it's always the day right before my birthday. So he, yeah, October fifth. October sixth and so there's always this merging of the two together where I drink so many keeps Yeah <laughs> at the
1: time. Yeah, for sure. But I miss it and Halifax has gotten it's it's really even grown a lot. Have You've been back since we've graduated in mm-hmm. 2016,
0: eh? Yeah, yeah. My, so I did uh, my master's out there, mm-hmm. um, stayed for a little bit longer. So I was there for about a year and a half after. And then um, the lab that I was doing my master's in moved to Calgary, but I still technically was a Dalhousie student. So I got to go back and defend there and see everyone that I knew, which was really lovely. Um, but just in the last little bit, uh, I went back, I guess, a few months ago. And it feels like a city. It feels like a big city now, which is a totally different feeling from what I had before where it was this kind of this small town vibe where everyone really knew each other and it was just like it was a community
1: really it was a community I think when we graduated microbiology was there was there 30 of us that graduated in our year yeah somewhere around there not very many at all yeah
0: Mm -hmm. it was a pretty tight-knit class it was a it was a great graduating year I loved it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: okay that sounds great I love Halifax love the donair wish I could be there yeah this coast is great too what brought you here? Yeah, I I don't know if we actually talked about after undergrad what we were going to do. Everyone seemed pretty uncertain. I know a lot of people were having like that midlife crisis of like, okay, for the last four years, five years, whatever, we've known what we're doing. Now we don't know what we're going to do. And um, I think I just was looking for a reason to move out west. I didn't really have the certainty that you did in research because my undergrad experience was like good, but I didn't think I was very good at it, which makes sense actually now looking at the undergrad struggling through now. It's really hard at the start.
0: Yeah, that's actually, that's so interesting. I've never thought about that before in terms of um, folks not going into grad school research because they don't feel like they're very good at research. That's a, that's a tough spot to be in because when you're in your undergraduate (laughs) stage, there's no way that you would ever be good at it because it takes a long time, right?
1: Right, but I mean, you're, you're with a whole group of overachievers. And I remember I was just doing a QPCR, these 96 well plates. So for context, it's like 96 tiny wells in a tiny plastic plate. And you're like, fill it, you're putting different DNA samples in them. Or I think, yeah, it was CDNA. And um, I just, I just made a mistake. And I remember looking at the postdoc that was helping me and was like, tears in my eyes is Aww. it supposed to be this hard and she was like it's very hard at the start and I was like okay Aww. yeah I know yeah <laughs> oh, that's so dumb. but I mean I really wanted to live out here and then I came out and I found that like when I had a lot more freedom in my research and when I was choosing what I wanted to what I was doing and I understood it I was I was much more inclined to do well because you actually care about it you care about the outcome mm-hmm. yeah
0: that's that's really interesting I guess my, the, the thing that I'm thinking about now is how do we not miss those students who would necessarily leave because they have that experience with undergrad research and.
1: Yeah, I think though, it is the sort of person that just really tackles the hard things, right? Okay. Like, do you not feel there's no one that would do it that just kind of is like rolling into something, but I guess people do do that. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's, a, I think there's a certain level of commitment that you get in research that, um, I don't know if it, if it's hard to find elsewhere, but it's because there, you fail for so long, yeah. like <laughs> so long. Um, maybe it's just like a masochistic type of person. Maybe that's a <laughs> better
1: I descriptor. I don't know. I know. And I don't know what you're like. I mean, I kind of know what you're like in your personal life, but that sort of tenacity kind of goes in different aspects of your life. So honestly, you could probably pick anyone out of, you could probably pick someone on a soccer team, like a national soccer team and put them in the lab and they would just be like, I have to do this and they would do really well. Oh, totally.
0: That's, yeah, that's Uh, fun. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so you, you came out here and you started your master's. What did you do your research in?
1: Yeah, so, okay, I'm from Prince Edward Island. Yeah, did my undergrad with Beth in at Dalhousie. And then I did my master's with Dr. Wilf Jeffries in immunology, which, which I was really excited about. I really like immunology. And the goal was to work with this chemist to take some of – so all these – hmm. So I didn't really think about this until later, but I think Wilf put me on this project because he thought I liked weed – which I, I don't I don't <laughs> smoke, but he said something like years later at a Christmas party that I was like, oh, I, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's incredible. I know, okay. yeah. So it was essentially you take uh, different components so cannabinoids, I and and you take different functional groups from those, you isolate them, and then the goal was to create something that would increase a marker. In cancer, that would allow your own T cells to um, to see that cancer. So conventionally in cancer, you have the primary area where that cancer occurs, and then you have secondary areas where they metastasize to. So oftentimes this is like the lung or the liver, places with a lot of blood going through it, because it's more likely then that these um, metastasizing cells will stick. And the issue with those cells is that your immune system can do a really good job up until they're, like, trying to to fight off this cancer. But once these metastatic cells, like, get these extra properties, they can do things like they can make themselves invisible. So our goal was to essentially find a way to take chemicals... And see if you can upregulate the marker that kind of spells danger for these cells, for these immune cells, the T cells, to kill them. And we were, I don't know, kind of successful. Like we had preliminary. These studies take a long time, so we we were able to do it well in mice. And then I mean, it was handed off to another company who will maybe take it to clinical trial. I don't know. It's tough to say what happens after. Have you ever yeah. had anything go to?
0: No, I've always been kind of deep in the basic science field. And yeah. actually, it's, it's a big reason that I moved from microbiology and immunology into biomedical engineering, because I was feeling pretty far from it at the time. Yeah. Um, and I wanted something that was a little bit closer to the clinic. Um, not that not that kind of what I'm doing is anywhere close to, to going into clinical trials, but it's closer and it's like therapeutic line in sight kind of thing. Yeah. Um, why cannabinoids?
1: Um. I think that Wilf was just interested in them. He was kind of on the wagon before a lot of other people were. And he th- he was just like, you know, other people use this for, I think, I don't know why he got interested in it. But yeah, I mean, I, you know how it is. You kind of walk into a project. I really like mm-hmm. all the T-cell stuff for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. What about your masters? Tell me.
0: Yeah, so so my master's was actually a continuation of some of the work that I was doing in my honours at DAL. Um, so I was working in a virology lab where we were studying a type of herpes virus that's called Kaposi's sarcoma-associated herpes virus, or KSHV. Um, and this is a herpes virus that in immunocompromised individuals, so people whose immune systems aren't functioning super well, um, can go in and essentially cause a cancer. And so this is the, le- the leading cause of cancer in folks with um, hiv And so uh, there was a lot of work into how this virus was causing the cancer. um, And that's kind of where our lab was focused in, uh, where we were saying essentially, okay, let's look at some of the genes that the virus is expressing. Let's see how they impact um, cell behavior or these cells that will participate in the cancer. Um, And so how can the virus change the cells to become more um conducive to creating the cancer. Um, and so my job really was we saw this really distinct change in the shape of the cells. And so so this change in what we call cell morphology. Um, and we also saw a really strong immune change in what the cells were expressing. And so these cells, which used to not be expressing any kind of inflammatory molecules, were now expressing inflammatory molecules. And we often saw those things hand in hand. So we saw the morphology change hand in hand, and we saw the inflammation kind of always at the same time. Um, and, and my job for my master's was to initially try to uncouple those things. And then as the as the research went on, we figured out that they can't be uncoupled. And so I kind of did this whole project on how cell morphology is related to inflammation which was super cool at the time. I really liked it. And actually, it was this really interesting transition into biomedical engineering because what ended up happening is we see these these cell changes or these cell morphology changes that are also conducive to certain things or that also happen during um, regular... Uh, how do I want to say this? I have to think about this. Um, We see these cell shape changes that also happen uh, in regular kind of physiological events. And so for example, I'm looking at blood vessel cells and they often elongate when you also have blood flow over top of them. Um, And so I'm starting to look into these areas where we've got these really complex experiments where you have to flow fluid over the cells and you have to start stretching the cells and that kind of thing. And that's what led me into biomedical engineering is because we've got the biomedical engineers who actually can design devices that we can do that with. And I've got these biological questions about how we can change cell morphology and how that impacts inflammation. And so it kind of married together. And that's what my first introduction to biomedical engineering was, was really this, um, how does cell shape change, influence inflammation, and how do we do this in in a physiological way?
1: Yeah, that was crazy. I'd never heard about that until you had told me about it. I know it's funny that we
0: don't talk about these things. I yeah. was realizing this too. I was like, I get to ask like a good friend for a long time all these questions that I genuinely don't yeah. know the answer to. Yeah,
1: it. it's crazy. I was talking to someone recently, my friend Nathaniel, and he was like, there's things that you just think are yes or no. Like, does it does a TCR like bind? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then that's like a yes or no answer. But he was saying like, you know, a signal... That's given off can be based on how how much pressure there is when it binds, so like not just which I didn't know that, and so you, you're just like oh I'm learning this from my friends. Mm-hmm. Just published something on that, pretty cool, yeah. No, it's
0: amazing. It's a it's really cool area, and it's always really exciting. I think Sarah, you probably agree with me. It's like such an honor to be the host of something like this because I literally like we literally just get to ask people about. Yeah. This awesome research, yeah. and I just get to learn about this really cool research that they're doing, and it feels almost selfish, but it's amazing. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, cool. So then you're here. Yeah. And- so now I'm here.
0: <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so now, yeah, now I'm in BC, um, and yeah, my research, my research subject area has changed quite a lot. Um. I mean, hilariously, ironically, I don't know what what adjective you want to use for this, but I was in a virology lab. So I was studying virus behavior. And then in January 2020, I moved out here. Yeah. And Get I started and I, yeah, and I literally started in something that was a virology. So it's it's totally absurd. And then two months later, like a global pandemic hit. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I feel like I should be doing more. Yeah. <laughs> but um But, uh, yeah, I switched into a stem cell bioengineering field. And essentially uh, all that means is a bunch of buzzwords. Yeah. Um, Yeah, is uh, what we're looking at is you can generate a number of different tissues from stem cells. So stem cells are cells that can, can become any type of tissue in the body. Um, and then we kind of specify those towards a certain type of stem cell that we want to focus on. So in our lab, we will take these stem cells that can become any tissue. They're called pluripotent stem cells. And then we put them through this kind of cocktail of different uh, molecules and, and different uh, cell densities and that kind of thing, cell-cell interaction to, to force them towards a certain tissue type. Um, and our lab is really focused on creating blood. And so we've got this whole kind of blood differentiation process um, where we start with these stem cells that can become everything. We focus them in onto blood and then we we focus in on different types of blood cells. And so we can look at red blood cells. We can look at white blood cells. You can talk about things like T cells. Our lab is really focused on, on creating T cells. Um, and so my project really focuses in on this, this earlier phase where... Um, you first start creating uh, your blood stem cells at about a month into pregnancy or so. You've got a couple other blood cells that are formed ahead of time to help your embryo mm-hmm. develop and that kind of thing. But but these, these blood stem cells that are the ones that go live in your bone marrow and produce adult blood cells for the rest of your life are, are first created about a month into pregnancy. And it's through this like crazy process where um, one of your main arteries is forming. So your dorsal aorta is forming. And then on the v- bottom side of the dorsal aorta, very specifically on the bottom side, yep. people are still figuring why, but, but these cells that are in your blood vessel actually butt off, they lift off into your bloodstream. Um, and then they'll go, um, to your fetal liver where they expand a bunch and then they go to your bone marrow, which is where they're going to live for the rest of your life. So they actually lift off from the wall of this blood vessel. And that's very specifically kind of the phase that I'm looking at. It's called, um, the endothelial to hematopoietic transition, and hematopoietic just really means blood. Um, so it's this endothelial to blood transition, and what I'm trying to do is essentially take a bunch of the research that we know from biology. So a lot of people have done research in mice and zebrafish on some of the different components for matter that matter for this um, endothelial to ha- blood transition. Or blood vessel to, to blood transition, um, and trying to apply all those things that we've learned from biology and model systems mm-hmm. to a cell culture system in vitro. So, so we're able to take it essentially from what we what we've learned from biology into the lab and see whether it matters for us in the lab, how it changes what some of these blood cells do, and how many of these blood cells that we get out. Um, and, uh, yeah, a couple different focuses where we look at some of those mechanical forces, things like blood flow, as I mentioned before, is yeah. something that came from my master's. But also other, other molecules like inflammatory molecules, other cells that are around. How, how do other cells contribute? That kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Do you feel like what? I am curious. I don't know if this is relevant to this. It's okay. Ask me anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> as, uh, so how do you deal with... Like pluripotency, X chromosome activation at the higher level. Do you only use male cells, or do you just take that randomness and hope for the best?
0: Yeah. Right now, we're only using male cells, and this is this is a great question because there's there's so much conversation in cell culture in general, but but in stem cells right now about uh, the gender of the cell that you're using and how it defines how these cells are going to differentiate because we were talking, yeah, we were talking to some people at a conference recently and this one woman, she essentially develops or she looks at the development of neural cells and she was saying that in, in female and male mice, you end up with the same cells that can do the same function at the end of the day, but they actually take different paths to get there. Which is amazing. It's it's so amazing, but we know so little about the female side of this because almost everything has been done in male mice, or it's been done on male um, cell culture lines, and it's not always um, expandable to women. And so it's uh, or sorry to female to yeah. um, to X female lines. people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, and uh, so it's really, yeah, it's it's really a huge issue, and we've been trying to bring in um, other, other pluripotent stem cell lines that are XX to see whether we can um, recreate our blood differentiation with those cells, but that in itself is kind of another project. Um, and a so, huge project. yeah, and, and really important one too. And so yeah. hopefully, hopefully there's a bunch of us in the lab who are thinking about it right now. So hopefully we can get there. Um, the other thing that's layered on top of it, which adds a ton of variability is that um, in the stem cell field, there's like embryonic stem cells, which are the ones that I think most people have heard of where you essentially can extract them from the embryo um, and they become every type of tissue and they are kind of ethically ambiguous. They've got a lot of ethical implications around them. Um, but what's happened in the last 10 years is that there's, um, there's this big paper that came out. That's essentially a researcher was able to take um, differentiated or somatic cells. So these are just regular cells in your body. So like skin cells, for example. So they take skin cells and they can get them to express these four different main genes that induce what we call stemness or the ability to to differentiate Mm -hmm. into other types of cells. And they actually take them back from like a skin cell back to a cell that can behave like an embryonic stem cell. Um, and so these are called induced stem cells. So these are ones that most people are working with right now because you lose um, some of those ethical implications that are kind of surrounding embryonic stem cells. Um, but, but that in itself causes so much variability as well, because depending on whether you take a skin cell or whether you take, I don't know... Uh, like an intestinal cell or something like that, and you move it back into a stem cell, do those behave differently? Um, so it's it's really interesting. And it's created right. this entire field. Um, and then the same question can be asked for, um, like, female and male cells, where if you take a skin cell from a man versus skin, or a skin cell from a male or a skin cell from a female, how does that actually behave when you take it back to a stem cell yeah. and then differentiated downstream. There's like, there's so much in there, so much to unpack.
1: I think the, yeah. So essentially when you have like all these cells, any cell in your body can be, become any cell. Like, it's not like when you turn a pluripotent cell into like five stages later or whatever, down to a, a liver cell, you've lost all the ability, all the DNA that leads to those those higher level cells, the pluripotent cells, let's say, I don't think higher level is the right word, but you, you are, are just kind of putting signals on the DNA to become something else. So what Beth is saying is like, you could literally just change those signals, bring it back to square one. And then you've got, you've got like just the raw material to do whatever you want, which is really cool.
0: Yeah. It's really, it's really remarkable and it's totally changed the field where, yeah, you can, you can kind of go back and forth, but we just don't understand really how it affects the cells long term now. Like it adds so many variables into it.
1: Yeah. You're working well. It's like all our systems. We're working with the best we have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, totally. Exactly. Okay. Tell me about your research. I want to hear. Okay. Okay. One quick thing though, is I do remember actually the moment when I decided research could be for me. Oh, nice. Okay. And I think you were there. We were at a talk because, um, so the Tupper Building had a lot of graduate uh, graduate students, in, um, and so they would have to give whatever, what, weekly seminars, and there was a student that went up, and I didn't know who they were, and they had, like, their research project. It was in immunology. I, I really, this was like six, seven years ago. I can't remember, but it was in immunology. And at the end, they said, so this is, the, this is the research I have. I have no idea what it means. Can you guys help me? And then you just have a room full of what I feel like are very qualified and very brilliant people all just sitting there looking at this research being like, okay, well, you know, if you do this assay, it could mean this. And if you do this, it means this. And I thought it was really cool just this like crowdsourcing of ideas and everyone being comfortable with like we actually don't know the answer. And I, I thought that was a really cool thing. I think that in undergrad, a lot of people wanted to be medical students. And I, I really struggled with the, the linear and isolation of getting to a single goal. But I really liked that community involved in research where everyone had an input and a say. And as long as they could back it up, which I mean, nobody, everyone's theoretically backing up this guy. But yeah, it, then you could really, you could really stand by it. And I thought that was really cool hmm. Yeah, I
0: love I love that aspect of research. One of my favorite things is the ability to say, I don't know, and just ask about something. Uh, one of the goals that I had when I came into my PhD was when I didn't understand something, I was going to ask it. And despite the fact that I may feel a bit embarrassed that I don't know what it was, or maybe I thought that maybe I missed it earlier in the presentation. And I, I've decided that um, maybe selfishly, um, and this is obviously to a limit, but <laughs> but selfishly, um, it's better for me to understand what's happening and to go on than it is to sit there and pretend like I'm understanding what's happening because then I can't actually help the person at all who's presenting. Um, so so it's that I don't know comfortableness with the fact that you're not going to know everything yeah, um, that I really like about research. And it's hard. It gets, it, it takes some time to get there. Like in, early in my master's, I remember being like really defensive about not knowing things and yeah. I was really worried and that kind of thing. But, but I feel like I've, yeah, I don't know. I yeah. can be comfortable being
1: an idiot, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. You gotta be kind of yeah. unabashed about it. Yeah. I do not know. I know it's in the internet somewhere, but, and sometimes it's not. When I started, so I went from wet lab immunology, so this was a lot of tissue culture and mouse work, and um, I briefly bounced through several labs. So one was like a neuroscience lab, one was um, a bioinformatics lab that kind of did rare disease research, one was an immunology lab that did uh, like NICU, neonatal intensive virus research, and then one was the one I landed in, which is like... um, Informatics, it's like computational genetics. Um, and I work in autism. But I remember like having to ask so many people because this computer stuff doesn't come easy. It's pretty like the, the learning curve is steep. And I, I asked this guy, Luca, like, hey, I just I have not one ounce of pride left. And he was like, yeah, there's just no <laughs> place for pride in this lab. You're going to get demolished if you even try. Yeah. <laughs> Okay,
0: thanks for backing me up. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Can I ask you? You <laughs> and he's like, you're missing this one comma.
1: Yeah, yeah. literally. Oh, my God.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, so I started in this lab. Mm, I, I didn't, so essentially in my master's, I had taken a course called um, human genetics, and... I don't know if we just didn't have courses or if I was in the wrong field like this, but I never really looked so intently at um, human like medical cases related to genetics. Like our genetics was quite theoretical. Oh, you know, mitosis, meiosis, like here's some HDAC stuff, but like nothing really that made me like genetics. And so I thought I wasn't very inclined towards it. But this course was really, really cool because it was designed to show you, like, case studies that literally changed the face of how we look at the lab when we're now looking at someone with a disease and what laboratory assays we do to find that disease. So um, a lot of things that were really cool to me, I really liked evolution, was there was this one gene, I think it was EGF2, um, and... It was this crazy concept that in the father and in the mother you get a different signal. So a child has a child has like um, what we call two alleles, like the paternal, the father's allele and the mother's allele, right? You have two two like alleles coming in for your chromosomes, and for the for the paternal one, you would say okay. It benefits the father if this child is really, really big, right? You really want for this for this father. You want a big child that would be able to thrive in the world. And this is is really cool to me because I really liked evolution undergrad. But for the mother, there's this other aspect where you, the this allele is trying to turn that signal off. So they're they're actually going head to head because for the mother, it doesn't really benefit to have such a large child because they wouldn't necessarily be able to have more children. For the father, that doesn't really matter. And so it's really crazy now if you get um, these signals contradicting, you should get a healthy child because you land somewhere in the middle and you get like a large-ish child, but your mother is totally fine. But if you kind of get maybe the father is winning too much in this signal, you can get I think it's called Weaver syndrome, and that's where you get an overgrowth syndrome that's so big, and the child is so, so large that it, I mean, it actually is a disease because their heart can't keep up and everything, but this is just evolution kind of coming into the clinical setting. Oh, it's so interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I explained it well, but it's, it's, it's fairly incredible, and so all these cases, you know, oh, okay, I knew that we could have um, insertions, you know, in our DNA when we, you can have insertions of different pieces of DNA. That's really cool. The, the reason that we don't give codeine to um, pregnant mothers is because this one woman had an insertion. like a, It was a copy number variant. She had one gene, and she had several, several copies of it, and it turned, for some reason, she metabolized codeine so fast into morphine that when she was breastfeeding, there was a lot of morphine in this breast milk and and their child unfortunately died. Oh my god! So like these sort of really crazy things that made me think like, oh my god, I actually love genetics. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, so that was a long winded thing, but I really really wanted to go into it. I really wanted to get into computational stuff, and I I wanted to be in in disability if I could. So this when this project landed for um, I guess for working in autism, we're trying to there's a new genetic sequencing technology that allows you to get a lot more information than you previously would be able to. So right now, when you're looking at, mainly you're looking at like small insertions and deletions that affect a child that might cause autism. But with this new technology, you can look at very large ones. You can look at um, methylation, which is like signals on the DNA that might affect the child's growth. You can look at small ones. You can look at... Any number of things, but to be put in the clinic, these things really need to be established as uh, an appropriate tool to be able to be used in healthcare. And, and those are really stringent, mm-hmm. especially in Canada. I mean, in Canada, there's a really high bar for what you're allowed to use in healthcare.
0: So, so is your goal
1: to... Um, get
0: these techniques to be used in the clinic, or is your goal to be to kind of have these exploratory analyses where you can find these different insertions or methylations, or, or really just changes in the DNA that's going to affect?
1: The yeah. Life. Oh my God! Write my thesis. Both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like we have individual people that were they have no cause for their autism, and at first I was really how can this help parents to know right? If you can't do anything, how does it help? Mm -hmm. But I think for a lot of parents, it's like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. This is just how it is. And we had no way of being able to help this if you can find a cause. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, for the future, obviously, the more information we know about what genes are affected in autism, when eventually we have individualized treatment, gene therapy, which we will at some point, Mm -hmm. I think in our lifetime,
0: I think so. I think Mm -hmm. we're we're pretty close to it. Actually, I
1: think so. Yeah. Yeah. Then then I mean, at least we know what genes are causative. That would be a whole ethics thing that I would really not be able to answer to. But Mm -hmm. and then the other thing is the actual technology. Like once you bring it into the clinic and it's benchmarked, it has a pipeline that can be reused and has been like established as like gold standard then not only can you use it maybe in autism, but this might be able to be used for other rare diseases as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, a lot of that. But really, it just looks like me swearing at my computer a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice, That's nice. And And I was really self-conscious because I was like, oh, my God, I wish I was just a computer scientist. Like, wouldn't I be able to get more done?
0: Oh, I, ha- I actually I meant to ask this question. So we've got just like a list of questions that we've gone way off track from but (laughs) but one of the things that I wanted to ask you is that now that you're in this stage of your degree because I have Mm -hmm. these thoughts all the time um, do you think you would have done things differently in your undergrad
1: why didn't we take any computational courses I don't know did I just miss the mark (laughs) everyone and their mom has taken them
0: yeah I, I don't know. And it like it's it should be so much more advertised in biology. Oh. Um, when, when I did one interview with someone about ecology, um, it was the same thing. It's like, oh, OK, so now um, you're going to take all these biological courses. You have to memorize all these plants and that kind of thing. And then you do your master's. like, OK, now code all these stats. Yeah. And you're just like, what? <laughs> like, what is this? You guys saw this coming and yeah. you didn't help us out at
1: all. Yeah. Yeah,
0: no. yeah. I always had a little bit of an interest in it. Um, Nobody in my master's lab was really into kind of computational stuff, but I wanted to learn it. I was really interested at the time. It's so
1: hard unless you have a path.
0: Yeah. And so luckily I had a goal. um, And so I worked towards that goal. But I can tell you for sure, my code is trash. Like it's the (laughs) ugliest thing because I I taught myself. It's like, it's just like, oh, this is how you do it. I guess I'm going to repeat that nine times rather than write like a loop or something like that, which there's way cleaner ways to do it.
1: (laughs) Welcome to the neighborhood. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. no, I have very little to offer in terms of coding, but fortunately the way my project works, like there's some really intense projects. My friend Kara is doing one that's essentially machine learning and language that's coding heavy because if your code's not good, this could, this already takes weeks to run these programs. It could be like a year probably. Mm -hmm. I've never asked her how long it could go, but so she's really, really capable, but for me... Luckily this project is more what is finding information to inform the biology.
0: Okay. Nice.
1: Thankfully. Because I don't think I could do much much more than
0: that. Yeah, I, I love it. I do I have those retrospective thoughts that I would love to have done some computer science. No. Would love have to to have done some more physics too. It turns out that I really love modeling. Didn't have any idea that
1: that was a thing that I was going to like. 100%. 100% should have done more physics. It's so relevant to our work, especially yours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess we can just learn it on our own.
0: Yeah. Anybody anybody <laughs> listening? Yeah. I, except, I mean, to be fair, at the time, it just felt like too much, right? It felt like... It,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, it didn't even cross our radar, you know? I think too much maybe, but if if we had realized, we would have just done it anyway.
0: Yeah, probably. Yeah so I want to finish off with a fun question for you. Um, and we're, I mean, I guess we're just the beginning of December today. Um, and it's theoretically the rainy season in Vancouver, although been a bit of a weird rainy season, but I want to ask you in a rainy season, what is your favorite thing to do on the weekend right now?
1: Oh my God. Okay. Well, I mean, have you been skiing? I haven't yet this haven't year, either.
0: but yes, it's coming. It's coming.
1: <laughs> I think it's going to be skiing. I think that'll be a big one. Okay. Yeah. Do you, what do you do in the winter, in the rainy season? Um,
0: In the rainy season. Yeah. I definitely like to, I mean, like I do like to, I'm skiing and snowboard of a bit later right now I was thinking about this what like my perfect weekend day would be yeah would be going and playing some disc golf because I'm obsessed and I love it even in the rain (laughs) uh even in the rain yeah yeah it's okay you bring like a little towel you wipe it off you're like (laughs) I was concerned about you not the disc oh (laughs) my god (laughs) oh my god I'm in so deep She couldn't even see it. I know. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then go home and take a nap because I love napping or read a book or something like that. Yeah. yeah, I read for a little bit. And then, like, have some friends over for dinner, maybe go to some live music. There's a sweet live music place that just opened near us, and it's so Tell fun. Me. It's called Asita's on Commercial Drive.
1: Okay, Acitas.
0: Yeah, O-S-I-T-A-S. Anybody in Vancouver listening? is a great place. Um, they always have live music, and I've seen a lot of really good stuff there.
1: Yeah, I, I'm really excited to hear that. I was just at the King's Head on Thursday, cause, and I was just saying, like, there's no live music in on the East Coast. I think this is the thing I miss the most about the East Coast. Yes. There is live music everywhere. Literally everywhere you go. I, I came here, and I was like, I couldn't find it if my life depended on it.
0: Yeah, I yeah. completely agree. It's something that I miss a lot. And there's, like, I don't know, I think – Maybe this is an aspect of like the East Coast community that we were mentioning at the beginning where people just like sing together. And I feel like singing together or dancing together is this whole other level of like being with yeah, friends. And stuff like that. Sing, yeah, St. Patterson,
1: everyone's dancing together. Yeah. It's like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. I think I think being around people this year will be such a reprieve from last year's where we had to like choose friends. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. I know. I can feel it already.
0: And with that, we've come to the end of our season on The Unscientific Method. What an exciting year. We've met some really wonderful scientists, and I've loved all the conversations that we've had. A sincere thanks to the team behind the scenes. You're the ones that make this possible. I just have to show up and talk, really. They do all the hard work. And of course, a huge thank you to our listeners out there. We couldn't do it without you. So please reach out with what you'd like to hear next season. Thanks, everyone. We hope you'll join us next year. This podcast was created with the help of our incredible team at The Unscientific Method. We're your hosts, Beth Castle and Sarah Dada. Our storytellers are Sophia Ramirez, Tian Do, and Cheda Swan. Audio editing is done by Candice Sipp, Kelly Liu, and Richard Cheung. Marketing and promotions are done by Conan Lee, Eugene Jang, Emily Dart, and Helen Ip. We also have the pleasure of working with Advice to a Scientist and scicats to create science communication workshops for the young scientists that we have on the show. Thank you to Laura Stankiewicz, Candace Ip and Jen Ma for making these happen and if you want to let us know how we're doing request something that you want to hear about or learn more about the workshops hit us up on social media follow us at the.unscientific.method on Instagram or on Twitter at unscientificubc send us a message on Instagram Twitter or at theunscientificmethod at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you bye for now